You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 9th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. At the minute, what's happening is there's lots of, you see, look, we tried. Everyone seems to be trying to cover their back so that when anything happens, they'll say, well, look, we did our bit. It wasn't our fault. And there's a lot of blame and finger pointing going around. A frustrating call between Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel ends with further no deal fears. My guests Salma El-Wadani and Jonathan Fenby will discuss that and the day's other news, including is Xi Jinping primed to fill the geopolitical void left by Trump's isolationist administration? And should the West look to India for tips on developing rural-urban relations? Plus... Other luxury goods companies and cities should take note. Not everyone wants to write code, work in service, draw up contracts or even be a journalist. Just imagine that. How craftsmanship is making a comeback in a corner of Paris. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Salma El-Wadani, the writer, poet, speaker and broadcaster, and Jonathan Fenby, chairman of China Research and director at T.S. Lombard and former editor of the South China Morning Post. We will start with Brexit and the now standard pause in which British listeners may leap away from their radios to hurl themselves into the nearest available pond, there to spend the next five minutes or so making mournful gurgling noises. It has not been a glorious day and a half for those leading Britain to the sunlit uplands of Brexit. EU leaders have sighed more wearily than usual at the UK's insistence that the Irish border will somehow fix itself and the Leave.eu campaign social media team formally abandoned the racist dog whistle for the racist symphony orchestra with accompanying fireworks and a fly-past. Salma, first of all, Leave.eu have now withdrawn the poster, which I don't think we need to go into detail about. It was fairly um, witless old-school German bashing. Was it something new or did it just reveal what was there all along? Um, I don't know if it it kind of indicates a ramping up, but more an increased carelessness. Everyone seems to be quite feckless in what they're doing. Mm. And now there's kind of, as we go along in this Brexit... Um, Greek tragedy that we are all currently watching. Um, I don't think Leave.eu would like you characterising it as a Greek tragedy. They they would insist that this is this is a British tragedy. Yeah, this is a homegrown right. Shakespearean <laughs> drama, right, which, which will end with victory mm. for Henry V, as, right, as, as no Shakespearean dramas so often did. Right, exactly. Um, so I think it just kind of really shows that there is this recklessness um, that people are less willing to adhere by kind of standard norms and of kind of what is um, acceptable. And I think, well, I mean, it's amusing, isn't it, that Piers Morgan waded in on this and he was calling it out as well. And I think, God, you really reached some kind of really far, far right to have Piers Morgan wade in and say that this is unacceptable, um, which I found mildly amusing for obviously many, many reasons. Um I think that everyone is just getting a little bit careless with it and they're kind of reaching this point of of not caring. Jonathan, it is, I think, something that... I mean, it baffles me, having lived in Britain for a long time, this extreme fixation with World War Two that oh, exists absolutely. among a certain portion of the population. And I, I would be the last to belittle the role that Britain played in that conflict or the desirability of victory in that conflict, but there's not insignificant number of British people who kind of wish it was still going on. Well, indeed, it's, you know, it's the finest hour, it's the Battle of Britain, it's the kind of feeling that 
we not only stood alone in 1940, but somehow we won the war, avoiding, you know, <laughs> mention of the Red Army or the US uh, involvement and so on. And, of course, you have the iconic figure of Churchill there, mm. with which our present Prime Minister, with whom, sorry, our present uh, Prime Minister would like to associate himself very much. So all this... He wrote field, an entire book to that effect. He wrote indeed. a book, yes, 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 which was really more as much about him as about Churchill. Uh, it must be said. I, I would disagree. I think what we saw yesterday in this, you know, crowd bashing is now uh, a new level which we've got to. But it's the result of the increasing degradation of di- of public dialogue. I mean, I sound mm. terribly old-fashioned in saying this. I agree. This, uh, I agree. You know, and the blowing of dog whistles, which we've had mainly on Brexit, but on a lot of other things too. Uh, and the whole, you know, way approach um, adopted now by the government, uh, the story uh, in some newspapers today that if uh, he loses a no-confidence vote, Boris Johnson will simply tell the Queen, I'm not going to resign and you can't make me. Uh, all this is... It, it, we've now got to not just the edge of the precipice, but uh, to a kind of state uh, of uh, public dialogue in this country, which I think is very dangerous indeed. And if that leads into an election campaign, that will be ramped up even further. Well, that seems unfortunately rather likelier than not. But, Salma, if we look at where we are right now, which in theory, what's 31 minus 9? 22 days <laughs> from, from Brexit, and yet rather before that, the Prime Minister is also by force of law supposed to seek an extension to Brexit. Um, do you perceive any actual strategy in what the British government is currently doing, or or is this just panic? Um, well, there's a, there's obviously kind of theories flying around, isn't there? And there's theories of um, Boris in talks with Hungary, and what they might do and how they might... Um, kind of block any kind of extension by the EU if they refuse to vote on it and then that will then take Boris out of of Brexit with a hard deal Brexit basically with no kind of responsibility and it wasn't his fault because he put put forward resolutions and measures. I think at the minute what's happening is there's lots of you see look we tried. Everyone seems to be trying to cover their back so that when anything happens they'll say well look we did our bit it wasn't our fault and there's a lot of blame and finger pointing going around or it's almost like everyone's kind of getting ready to say look it wasn't my fault. I did everything that I could. Um, and then I think there's a there's a state of general panic from the public um, as we just watch our political leaders seemingly blunder around with no real plan. Uh, Jonathan, if this is all about positioning for an election, what is Boris Johnson thinking at this point? Again, as far as it's possible to tell, does he think that that works for him, that he finally agrees through gritted teeth at the last minute to seek an extension from the EU. The election then comes about. He can then say, as Salma was saying, this was all everybody else's fault and not ours, which has been the the Brexit battle cry for the last three years. And he will then take advantage of a disorganised opposition and win a mandate uh, under his own steam. And then presumably we go round again. Um, Is is that basically the plan? I think that's basically the plan. And you get this extraordinary situation where... (coughs) In that uh, scenario, uh, it would actually be the government here of the UK, the country that is leaving the EU, which would be attacking the EU for giving it an extension to find new terms. You know, this is the logic here is is rather rather strange indeed. Um, he'd be running. You know, it's a classic thing: the people against Parliament, uh, and so on. I think, uh, and against the Europeans, and particularly against the Germans, and the French will come uh, into the uh, sites of the the government uh, and tend down 
Downing Street before very long, I think, when Macron takes a hard line, as he probably will uh, at the weekend. So you're going into a kind of nationalist uh, election here with uh, the government, Boris Johnson, with his advisor, Dominic Cummings, egging him on or pulling his strings, whichever it may be, uh, all the time, going for basically the little England, we can make it on our own, we're back to Shakespeare and Henry V and so on, and the finest hour and so on and so on. <coughs> Bring it on, please. And we will punish those nasty Europeans who haven't done as we wish. I mean, how we're actually going to punish them and what the then subsequent negotiations with the EU, which they would have to be, uh, will be like, uh, the mind boggles. Jonathan Fenby and Salma El-Wadani will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Rylan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Turkish forces and Syrian rebel allies are due to push into Syria. Turkey has been expected to advance into northeastern Syria since U.S. President Donald Trump announced the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the area. The move has been widely criticized in Washington as a betrayal of the U.S.'s allies, the Kurds. The United States has imposed visa restrictions on Chinese government and Communist Party officials accused of being involved in the mass internment of Uyghurs and other Muslim minority groups in the Xinjiang province. The restrictions come after the U.S. Commerce Department imposed export restrictions on U.S. companies, preventing them from selling their products to 28 Chinese entities. And two Californian companies have begun shutting off power to about 800,000 customers in a desperate attempt to avoid wildfires caused by winds damaging power equipment. Forecasters are warning that many parts of Northern California are under extreme fire weather danger, with windy and dry conditions expected for the region. Large areas of the San Francisco Bay Area, though not the city itself, are expected to be affected. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Jonathan Fenby and Salma El-Wadani. Let's look now at Kashmir. The still substantially locked down region is usually portrayed, not unreasonably, as a conflict between India and Pakistan. There are, however, other countries bordering Kashmir, and one of them, China, appears to be taking an increasing interest. Chinese President Xi Jinping hosted Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan in Beijing earlier today and was broadly supportive of Pakistan's position, at least as Pakistan reported the meeting. Xi is due to visit Chennai later this week. It remains to be seen whether Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will recall that encounter as fondly. Um, Jonathan, China is a historical ally of Pakistan. Are they basically in agreement about Kashmir? Uh, They want to back Pakistan. Uh, A lot of the Chinese investment that has gone uh, into Pakistan, building up the corridor uh, up to Xinjiang, uh, is a little bit dodgy at the moment. Nobody knows quite how well it's working. Um, The Pakistani government is under some criticism for the kind of way it has thrown its lot in with China uh, and so on. But the Chinese uh, certainly want to back up uh, Pakistan in this. And they've always been pretty wary of India, it must be said. So I would see Xi's role in this as being pretty limited, in fact, partly because I don't think Modi would necessarily trust him as an intermediary.
Uh, yeah, I, so I should imagine at that meeting in, Ch- in Chennai, Kashmir will be among the subjects that Narendra Modi is least anxious to discuss. Do you get the sense that India thinks this is working for them internationally, though? The, the move against Kashmir was obviously to shore up Narendra Modi's base domestically. Do you, do you get the impression he's concerned in the least about how this is playing overseas? Um I don't, I think, and obviously I don't know as much about this, but I think from what I've read and what I've seen kind of commentating on the, um, in the media at the minute, um, I think he's always a little bit concerned where Pakistan is is concerned and just because of their own history, um, especially if, what kind of, what does that mean for India if Pakistan is very much an ally with China who is very much bigger um, and has a lot of resource, resources at its disposal? Um, I think he's, there's a wary eye. I mean, is China to be taken seriously as an interlocutor here. I mean, Narendra Modi would certainly not Mm. see that there's any need for anybody to be an interlocutor. Even Donald Trump. Uh, He even uh, turned down the offer from Trump. Yeah, amazing. Um, But but is there actually any potential for China here to mediate, should it wish to? I think it's very, very limited because I think India India always has this long-term view of we're going to be the big other Asian power as against China, which has been Mm -hmm. making the running uh, in recent decades. You know, India, our day will come, population, economy, uh, and everything else. Uh, China is slowing down at the moment. China is rethinking uh, its position uh, in the world. And uh, but one thing that does remain so with China is it is very, very loath to get involved in multilateral negotiations of any kind. It likes bilateral negotiations. So it will talk to Pakistan, it will talk to India. India, as it did with Korea uh, and the United States. Um, but I don't see she as any great peacemaker in Kashmir, partly because I'm not sure that either India or Pakistan really want peace in Kashmir. Uh, Salma, looking at accounts of the meeting between Imran Khan and Xi Jinping, and Imran Khan doubtless understands that his uh, room to manoeuvre in dictating terms to China about literally anything is somewhat limited. But it is noticeable um, that it's not just Pakistan. It's like pretty much every other Muslim country on earth seems serenely uninterested in what China is doing to its Muslim minority population in Xinjiang. Is that weird? Um, I, don't, I think serenely uninterested is... Uh, possibly harsh. It's possibly a little bit harsh. I think there's, there's always an interest. I think perhaps there's an idea of how much can be done uh, with China's uh, very strict kind mm. of... Um, policies on on online and kind of what can be shared and what is censored um and also there's there's not that much news coming through because of that so we're never getting full stories right um so i think that makes it very difficult to then wade in on an opinion um but i mean very broadly the muslim community um globally (laughs) has many many struggles and is persecuted across the world uh so i don't know it's any less of an interest. But it has been very blatant indeed. I mean, both Khan himself, uh, the Indonesian president and others have all, when asked about Xinjiang, simply say, oh, we're not aware of what's going on there. Well, if they're not, uh, you know, they, they really must be among the least informed people in the world. But this is the price that China... Uh, demands for uh, its aid, its help, uh, and so on. And uh, it's a cold-blooded realpolitik decision, I think, that's been made by a lot of leaders of Muslim states. Uh, Just a final quick thought on this, Jonathan, looking ahead to that meeting in Chennai between Xi and Modi. In the the grand historical sweep, where would you estimate 
China-Chinese-Indian relations right now? Are they getting on any noticeably worse or better than usual? Uh, I th- the word I used earlier, wary, I think, mm. goes for them. They, 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 they see the need uh, to have some kind of relationship, to talk to each other. There are still uh, unsettled border issues, of course, between them. Uh, India is pretty leery of China's Belt and Road Initiative, basically surrounding it, Pakistan on one side and Southeast Asia uh, on the other side. And uh, Modi will play the nationalist card. And part of that is keep your distance from China. Okay. well, finally, on the news panel, there is a perfectly makeable case that pretty much every conflict of our time, whether military or political or cultural, is to some extent or another a conflict between the city and the country. Between, that is, those who choose to live in cities, which tend towards the liberal and multicultural, and those who prefer the country, which tends towards the conservative and homogenous. The only one of Britain's big cities which voted leave in 2016, for example, was Birmingham, and that by a waferish margin. An Indian social enterprise called Grassroots that's R-O-U-T-E-S reckons it might have a solution they are organising homestays in rural villages for Indian urbanites. Um, so I mean, the point is, and it's a reasonable point that there has been, while, while rather, there has been an enormous uh, migration from the country in India to the increasingly vast cities there are still literally hundreds of millions of people living in rural India mm. who the, the more powerful cities tend to forget about. On that basis, is this a good idea? Personally, I think yes. I think that's a problem that not only India has, but globally we have. And I think the way the world is changing and the way that we're living and the way we're developing technology is an increase in this um, spotlight on cities and on major cosmopolitan Mm. cities. And I think that's going to be a problem for everyone. I mean, India's population is huge. Um, There is so much potential in the countryside and in rural areas that I think it would be um, it would be kind of. Uh, wrong of them to to not focus on that and to not do something with that. And I know there's an argument about is this kind of taking advantage. But when I look at and I compare this to ourselves, when I look at and obviously we don't have the same population, but when I look at Brexit and and the the mass divides that we have in our country now, so much of that um, is because there is just this massive disconnect. And I grew up in Newcastle, which is the other end of the country, <laughs> and um, w- me and so many of my friends have ended up in London because there is absolutely nothing for us in Newcastle. Um, and that, sorry, that might sound damning. Beware, but I, I have friends in Newcastle who tell me the opposite. Move, they say. And absolutely not. I'm going to say stay in London. They're just for a, if you're looking for certain things, if you want to kind of rise, and if you're ambitious, there's just not that same level in in the cities. And that's why I think yes, absolutely, you need to focus on the rest of the cities. That being the case, Selma, should should a program like Grassroots also be operating in the other direction? Should they be bringing people in from rural areas to live in big cities for a bit and see have, see if they like it. I think, why not, right? You can definitely, let's call it a, an exchange, right? Put, put, put a, like a student exchange. I don't know. I think I, th- I think the main problem is here, people will always flock to big cities naturally because of opportunity. So if you start building up more rural areas or offering alternative um, uh, kind of ways of income, of life, of, of kind of diverging on things there, then I think that's always going to balance out and it should be. I mean, Jonathan, is ultimately that that divide between the the city and the country reconcilable? Because I wasn't, I don't think, being entirely preposterous earlier in setting that up as the basis for for most modern conflicts. You could certainly apply that mm. dynamic to the civil war in Bosnia, for example, yeah. uh, to the civil war in Iraq, and and many many others. That these are all substantially conflicts between the urban and the rural. And of course, Mao Zedong uh, believed, let's get the urban youth back to the countryside, Indeed so. and somehow well, so they did, will. 
so, become, so, so did the Khmer Rouge. They will become pure and wonderful, mm. and that's the danger of it. You can idealise, I think, the countryside as such, and I'm not sure. I think this Indian uh, initiative has much to be said uh, for it, but is this basically just uh, short-time tourism for urbanites in a, a twee uh, rural setting, uh, and is that that is a very negative response? <laughs> yeah. I know, but you know, is it is it R and B basically in the Indian village? But if it, if it starts something wider, then I think yeah, there's a well, there's that, definitely a case for sure. it, and it has to start somewhere. And if it starts with tourism, then sure, why not? I suppose yeah. you have to be careful about which urbanites you take to visit exactly, the countryside yes. for fear of reinforcing all the worst. Uh, Stereotypes. stereotypes they or, or they, right. they already have. And maybe it's not always about taking people from the city into the countryside. And maybe it is about, well, let's just put our attention, focus and resources into those areas and how we can develop yeah. them so people naturally want to be in those spaces. I moved from Newcastle because I don't want to be in that space, right? <laughs> like, how do we build that up? Salma El-Wadani and Jonathan Fenby, thanks both for joining us. In a moment, a new opening from Chanel in Paris. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. Monocle's free-to-subscribe daily email newsletters, the Monocle Minute and Weekend Edition, deliver news and a swathe of recommendations from our editors, correspondents and bureau. You can also browse a menu of radio highlights and new Monocle films. Our Weekend Newsletter delivers great columns from Tyler Brule and Andrew Tuck, wardrobe advice from our fashion team, places to stay and eat, odd news from even odder places and some reminders of how to behave in public from Mr Etiquette and his feline sidekick, Mr Tiddly. It's a fun take on weekend living. This new addition to your weekend is available for free. Head to monocle.com forward slash minute. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. An enormous new Chanel open space in Paris promises to breathe new life into the craft industry. Here is the view from the editorial floor. It won't come as news that we're fans of the open kitchen. Aside from the drama, flames, energy and hopefully tasty bites such a setup generates... We also like that a transparent setup demands tidy working practices, polite conduct, and for people to be on top of their game. We feel the same about most businesses, save for banks that like to make a lot of huff about transparency in their architecture, but fail to do the same in daily practice. Yesterday evening, Chanel gave colleagues, collaborators and media a sneak peek of 19M, a 25,000 square metre facility at the edge of the city that will soon be home to 600 artisans renowned for pleating, embroidery, millinery and more. Chanel's president of fashion, Bruno Pavlovsky, told Monocle that 19M is unique in the world as it brings together so many craftspeople under one roof. Designed by architect Rudy Ricciotti, the building will be unveiled in a little over a year and marks a further step in the revitalization of the 19th arrondissement. Other luxury goods companies and cities should take note. Not everyone wants to write code, work in service, draw up contracts or even be a journalist. Just imagine that. There's money and satisfaction that comes with skilled craftsmanship. Chanel just might be sparking a mini-manufacturing renaissance in this corner of Paris. 
That was The View from the editorial floor, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Naomi Potter. The studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. The House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.